Hi, everyone. Susie O here. Just want to let all of you know that the certificates of deposit at Alliant Credit Union are now at, for a six-month CD, 5%, a 12- to 17-month CD, 5.15%, and an 18- to 23-month CD, 4.90%. And for those amounts of $75,000 or more, just add on 0.5% to those rates. Go to myalliant.com and check it out. October 14, 2021. You know what today is? The day after the Alliance sweepstakes. Has closed, everybody. So congratulations to all of you who participated in that. I can't wait to see. I can't wait for you to announce won. the winners. No, right? right? I love that. <laughs> anyway, today also is Ask Susie and KT. Anything. So, all right, Miss Travis, okay, go I'm for gonna, it. I'm going to open with an email that I got that I thought was really fun. This isn't a question, but it's a request, and it's from Nick. And Nick is asking that we give him and his husband a shout out to congratulate them on their anniversary. What is his husband's name? Jeff. So Nick and Jeff. Ready? So when we do that, should we say Nick and Jeff or do we just say, what do we do? We say happy anniversary, boys. Nick and Jeff. There we (laughs) go. May you only experience as much love and happiness as both KT and I have over these past 20 some odd years. All right. Okay. Next, KT. Okay. Hi, Susie. Hope you and KT are doing well. Thank you for your wonderful podcast. I don't have so much as a question as I have a comment or observation. My dad is getting ready to give both my sister and me part of our inheritance once his commercial building sells. I remember you telling a listener that an inheritance is only for the person it is for and really should not be put in a joint account. So this is what I'm doing with the $90,000. It's a lot of money. I told my husband about it. He's absolutely fine with it. It's funny how guilty I feel about this. I feel like because we share our finances and investments, I should also be sharing this. Anyway, Susie, what's your thoughts? So I'm not exactly sure where she put the money, but what here's what everybody has to understand in terms of what I meant by what I said. It's not that you shouldn't share it. It's just that it should always stay in your individual name. So if you get an inheritance, Katie, let's just say you got an inheritance from somebody, that inheritance was given to you. It was not given to us. So that money needs to go into an individual account in just your name. That way, if ever we got divorced or something, there'd be no and ifs, buts about it, that that money was yours and yours alone and not open up to be split because of divorce. Mm -hmm. However, 
just because, my dear Sheena, it's in that separate account in just your name, doesn't mean that if you want to use some of it for your husband and you to either go on a vacation or go out to eat or buy something or do something like that, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. But just be very careful because too many times now I have seen inheritance come in, the person that it comes into, they put it into a joint account. It's a 50-50 split at that moment in time. It's legally then owned by both of you. And eventually you get a divorce and there goes half of your inheritance. So that's all. It's not that you can't share it. It's just that ownership always has to be in your individual name. Okay, that's clear. I'm glad you said that because I absolutely thought, why not share it? But for that reason alone. But you have to be careful how much you share it. Mm. I can tell you stories you don't even want to know. No, I I can imagine. So this next one's from Jody. And I love that Jody's 17-year-old daughter is taking a personal finance class at school. And she loves it. And she's asking Jody a ton of questions. So here's what Jody is asking Susie. My daughter would like to open her own investment account. I'm wondering if you can recommend best options. She has a part-time job, so we're talking about investing small dollars in slices. Are there any products appropriate for teens? Yeah, what I would be doing if I were you, my dear Jody, is I would be opening up right here and right now a Roth IRA for your daughter. Now, she's only 17. So for the first year, it has to be a custodial Roth IRA. Once she turns 18, it can be in her individual name. And within the Roth IRA is where you would buy slices or whatever it is that you want to purchase. The best place to do it would be at a discount brokerage firm such as Charles Schwab, Fidelity, one of those where you could easily buy slices. And for those of you who don't know, slices are where you buy a sliver of a stock. So if you want to buy Amazon rather than spending $3,200, because maybe you don't have that to buy one share of Amazon, you get to buy a slice of it for $5, for $10, but you still get to own it. So that is exactly what I would do if I were you. And the reason in a Roth IRA, remember, any money she originally puts in, she can take out at any time, regardless of her age or how long it has been in there without taxes or penalties. Also remember the rules, the maximum that you can put into an individual retirement account, whether it be Roth or traditional is $6,000 if you're under 50, $7,000 if you're 50 or older, or 100% of your earnings, whichever one is less. So if your daughter earns $500 this year, that is the maximum that she can put in to a Roth IRA. That's what I would be doing if I were her. Okay, next question is from Tina. I hope this email finds you healthy, happy, and safe. It does. (laughs) It's my husband and I are shopping for term life insurance. I've already received some quotes, but I want to know if it's necessary to get additional quotes and shop around. If so, is there a company that you can recommend? My favorite company really to shop for insurance quotes, term insurance quotes, is Select Quote. 
And maybe that's because they were the first ones who did it 30 some odd years ago. And I have such an attachment to them because they've always quoted legitimately. They've never done a bait and switch where they quote low and then you go to apply and no, you have to pay more. So policy genius is fine. You might want to try selectquote.com. But here is the key. No matter where you go, you get the one that's the cheapest because each one of these quoting services will give you five quotes from five different companies. Then you're asking yourself, well, which one should I pick? Simple. The one that is the least expensive is the one that you choose. Okay, Susie, next question is from Rosanna. So Rosanna said, and and this is based on the school, the Susie school that you just did on the new tax proposal sitting in Congress. All right. This is regarding her Roth conversion. In October, 2019, I left my job of 15 years to become a stay-at-home mom. I worked hard. I've accumulated about 700,000 in my 401k with that job. It's all in pre-tax dollars. I rolled the money over to a traditional IRA when I resigned. If the new tax proposal in Congress is enacted, will I still be able to convert the money to a Roth until 2031, as long as my household taxable income stays under 450000 All right. She Ro- needs some clarification you on this. You betcha you do, Rosanna, and everybody listen to me. The... Four hundred and the four hundred and fifty thousand dollar income limit that I was talking about on Sunday's podcast was simply the limits of income when your tax bracket is going to now go up to thirty nine point six percent to the highest income tax bracket if they pass the new bill. It has nothing to do whatsoever with Roth conversions. There's an income limitation, obviously, to qualify for a Roth, but there has never been an income limitation since they got rid of it years ago to convert money. So it does not matter whether you have earned income, your earning income, how much money you're earning, it doesn't matter. If you have money in a traditional IRA that you have never paid taxes on, you still can convert it anytime you want, just knowing that you will owe ordinary income taxes on it at the time of conversion, and that money has to come from outside of the money that's in the account that you're converting. You just need to take that into consideration. The new tax law that's been proposed, we'll see, or the bill, I should say, that's been proposed, we'll see if it passes or not. They are just trying to get rid of backdoor Roth IRAs. That's all. They aren't really talking yet about conversions from pre-tax to after-tax Roths. They're talking about backdoor conversions and other after-tax conversions that they want to get rid of. So it does not apply to you. Okay. I still find that Roth business a little bit confusing. You're going to find it far less confusing, Katie. When they get rid of it. If they get rid of some of these things that people are doing now. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody wrote in and they said they heard the podcast on Sunday. And I said, there's some things that are good about it and some things that are bad about it. And all the things really that I talked about on um, Sunday's podcast were not the things that I don't like about it. 
because mm-hmm. there's only so many things, everybody, that I can talk about in 30 or 35 minutes without your head absolutely spinning. Like, like mine do. Right. So, <laughs> but the things I talked about on Sunday are all things that I actually think should happen. I do think that the child tax credit should go on forever. I do think it should be monthly, so that I like. I also think that they should raise the limits of income so that more people can qualify for the child tax credit, which might happen in 2023 than currently do today. I like that they're thinking about getting rid of the backdoor Roth IRA. I don't think that people should be allowed to do it. Even though I've told everybody to do it for years, it's been legal. That I was always like, you know, though, laws are laws. And, you know, they should get rid of that. They should. So most of the things that they're talking about, I actually like right now. All right. All right. Next question is from Terry. And Susie, Terry obviously has your will and trust kit. And the question here is, if I want my trust distributed by percentages to friends or relatives, can I just use percentages? Or... Because I don't want their inheritance from me to go any further if they were dead at that time, would I pick equal shares to lapse? Yes. So, so wait, here's the answer right. from Susie, but um, right. I hope I read that correctly. Did, did it sound right? Yeah, it okay. sounded right. So what Terry was trying to say is that Terry did purchase our must-have documents. And within there, you have to make a decision Who, number one, do you want to leave your money to or your assets to upon your death? Next, all right, you know who you want to leave it to. The next thing is how much do you want to leave them and what do you want to leave them? And what happens if you designate somebody in your trust and that person dies before you? Then what happens? Or that person dies with you. You're in a car crash together. What happens to the amount of money that you left to them? Now, there's two ways to leave money to people. Equal shares mean, let's say I have three kids and I want them each to have equal shares of everything that I have. And then what happens is if it says equal shares to lapse, what that means is I have three kids, Bobby, Gary, and Susie, and I've left them each equally the same amount of money, but one of them dies, then that share lapses, and then the money that's left is divided equally between the other two that are remaining. That's what that means. The other way to do it is through percentages, that you give them a percentage of everything that you have. So I want Bobby, Gary, and Susie to each have 20% of my estate. And so that is another way that you can do it versus an exact dollar amount. So here's what you have to understand. If you select percentages The kit provides, so the must-have documents provides that that if one of your beneficiary dies before you, their share is added back into the others provided to their percentages. So just like equal shares to lapse, if you simply do it by percentages and that person dies, then the other beneficiaries, it goes into their pool and they just simply get more. It would not go to their relatives just that simple. So it's just up to you as to how you want to do it. But both ways are good. 
Um, I've done it just so you know, in my own personal trust, as well as KT's, we've done it with equal, we've done it with actual dollar amounts to go to specific people versus percentages. Because you know, the other thing is, you can leave it as a percentage in your your estate can grow larger and larger and larger. And you may end up leaving more money to some people than you really want to. So just something to think about. And by the way, I'm just going to say for those of you who want to take advantage of the must have documents in January, I think it's January, KT, there will be a price increase, a significant one on these documents. So if I were you, I would take advantage of it now and go to suzyorman.com slash offer. And that is where you can pick up $2,500 worth of state-of-the-art documents for $69. It will not be there for that much longer. Yeah, do it. Everyone needs that. Okay, this next question is from Corey. Corey is doing great, Susie, and Corey turns 40 on Thanksgiving Day. But here's what he has to say. First and foremost, I have to say how much I love your podcast and never miss them each week. I've been a Susie follower for 20 years, and I have used your advice to build my current net worth. So Susie, if you saw Corey's current net worth, you'll be very, very proud of him. But I don't need to disclose that because his question is this. My financial question is concerning active managed funds versus index funds. I only have active managed funds. Am I making the right decision? KT, just put your email in front of me and I see many of the funds that you have. And you have so many funds, you know, um, a lot of funds here. But here's the thing that you need to understand. Every mutual fund, whether it's a managed fund or an index fund, what's the difference? A managed fund has a portfolio manager and that person decides what they want to buy or sell in that portfolio. It is totally up to their discretion or a team of managers, period. An index fund simply buys and sells an index, whether it be as a Standard & Poor's 500 index or the Dow Jones Industrial Index or the Russell 2000 index or the Total Stock Market Index. They buy the index and whatever is in the index is in that portfolio, period. Because of that, every portfolio who has a manager and all mutual funds have a manager, the index fees or the management fees on index funds tend to be very small, if anything, like 0.04%, hardly anything. The expense ratio or the management fees on managed mutual funds tend to be a lot higher. And that can absolutely affect the performance because you're the one paying that management fee. So if I were you, my dear Corey, I would go online, you go to Yahoo Finance, you can go to anywhere CNBC and put in all the symbols of all these mutual funds that you have and look at what the expense ratio is. Then, and all of you should be doing this, which is why I'm going into detail with it. And then what you should do is take a look at what their return has been after fees and compare that to what the index's 
returns have been after fees. And I'd be surprised if your funds have actually beat the index funds, because normally index funds can beat managed funds at least 95% of the time. Now, obviously, there are years that that can change, but overall in the long run. Also, you always want to make sure that you have a no-load fund. You never, ever want to buy a loaded fund. And a no-load fund is a fund where there is no fee to buy or sell it, period. There's no load, no commission. A loaded fund usually has about a 5% fee for you to buy it or a 5% for you to sell it. You would know that you had a loaded fund by the letter A or B after the name of the fund. You never, ever, ever want to buy a loaded fund. I personally think it is a tremendous waste of money and um, they make no sense to me on any level. You only want to buy no load funds, whether it's a managed fund or an index fund, that's going to have to be up to you. I would always go with an index fund. I Okay, so on the same theme, Susie, I have a question from Eric. I love that these men are so smart and interested in, in really learning this in, with a deep dive. But Eric is relatively new to investing. He's been investing here and there in mostly index funds using Robinhood since January, investing money that he could lose, but obviously would prefer not to. So he noticed there's an option within Robinhood to set a limit sell for a period of 90 days, which would be initiated if a fund drops below a set price. Yeah. So here's his question. Susie, would it be wise to maintain a limit sell order set to the average cost of the fund as a way to protect myself from losses if the market drops? Then I could also possibly try and buy back into the fund at a lower cost advantages, disadvantages. Yeah. So, oh, you're getting technical on us today, I, KT, I know. with the well, ones that you've chosen. I but, have. All right. Well, good, because people should learn this stuff. Eric, I don't like limit sell orders. And again, a limit sell order is that you own something and you can put in an order anytime you want to sell what you have, whether it's a stock, mutual fund, exchange traded fund, it doesn't matter. And sometimes maybe let's just say that stock is selling at $45 a share and you want to sell it if it goes below 40. You put in an order to sell that stock at 40 and 40 is the limit price. So it has to hit 40. If it goes below 40, you get to sell it. All right. The reason I don't like that is sometimes a stock can dip very fast and go down to 39, especially in markets like this. You've sold it now. You, you it's can't, gone. it's gone. And before you know it, in the same day, it's back up at 45 mm -hmm. and you're out of it just that quick. So no, if I were you, I would not use limit sell orders at all. If you really want to watch your stocks, watch them and make decisions what to do on, with them day by day. But do not forget in these markets how much stocks have gone down and then how stocks go right back up. And don't forget, if you sell something at a loss and it's outside of a retirement account, right? you cannot buy it back within 30 days 
again, because you can't take a loss. You should listen to last Sunday's podcast. You can't take a loss off your taxes and buy it back right away unless it's after 30 days. In keeping with the same theme, Susie, this question is from Laura. In one of your recent podcasts, you advised on how to sell shares of stocks and funds. I've heard others say the same thing you did, that you should sell your most recently purchased funds first and also sell things that went down as to lower your capital gains tax burden. But I never really understood that. Yes, you would pay lower taxes, but isn't the whole point of investing to realize (laughs) your gains? Why not sell the shares that have made you the most money? Isn't that the point of investing? This this is a great question because people... That should have been your quizzy. I know. Wait. I would think it's fine to just suck it up and pay the taxes. You're enjoying the investment gains. Susie, am I missing something? Well, guess what, my dear Laura, I think you are missing something. Because the goal of investing, obviously, is to make money. But not to just enjoy your gains, which means you sell out and now you have that money. But it's to make decisions of think of Apple, think of Amazon, think of how rich you would be today, if you never had sold those stocks, period. So I actually think the goal of investing is for you to invest in something that goes up and up and up and up and up and all the way back down and you've kept it and it goes all the way back up again. And 10, 15 years later, oh my God, the amount of wealth that you would have if they're good quality stocks would be amazing. But some people get into a situation where they need to sell. Maybe they don't even want to sell, but they have a need to sell some of their stock, not all of it, because they don't need all of that money. In that case, you have to look at how long have you owned that stock? Because let's say you bought a stock eight months ago, and now it was going up and you really liked it, and maybe you bought more six months ago then five months ago, and it's been going up and up, and now it's two months ago, and now you need some money. You wouldn't want to sell the ones from eight months ago, because that still would be a short-term gain, because you haven't owned it for over a year. So you would pay ordinary income tax on a large amount of money, possibly, on a stock that you don't really want to sell. So if you're selling the entire stock that's another thing, then it doesn't really matter. But if you're just selling shares of a stock, not all of your stock, you want to sell the stock that produces the least amount of tax ramifications at this point in time. That makes sense. Because the other thing, I just have to say one other thing, Laura. So you have a stock and it has tremendous gains in it and you never want to sell it. Currently, unless they change the tax laws one day, you die, you pass it down to your beneficiaries, they now get a step up in basis on all of it. And they get to sell it and not pay any tax whatsoever. So I'm going to stick by how I would do it. And yes, the goal of investing, right, is to, you know, enjoy your money, and that's the and making the most out of it. But sometimes making the most out of your money means not selling that which you owe the most taxes on. All right.
So Susie, this next question is from Beth. Dear Susie and KT, I have a few questions about backdoor Roths. I'm retired with both Roth and IRA investments. Can I do a backdoor Roth from my IRAs even though I no longer have earned income? If so, should I move relatively small amounts, meaning ten to 15000 each year, via the backdoor process in order to increase the Roth and reduce the IRA for my children when they inherit? I would take out a bit extra as cash in order to pay the income taxes due. So it goes on and on. And you don't have to go on. Yeah, I want to answer think, this. You don't have to go on I anymore. I think you need to kind of yeah. nip it in the bud, as they say. All right, Beth and everybody, let's get something straight right now. Currently, you do a backdoor Roth IRA only because you don't qualify for a contributory Roth IRA where you can put money in every single year after tax because your adjusted gross income is over $140,000 if you're single, uh, $208,000 if you are married finally jointly. You no longer qualify for a contributory Roth IRA. And again, I say the word contributory because I want you to understand that's the type of Roth IRA where you contribute every year as much as you possibly can up to the maximum amounts allowed. So you have retired. You now have this money and you have it in an IRA rollover. And now you want to get it into a Roth the way you would get it into a Roth because you have never paid taxes on it is simply convert it into a Roth, a regular Roth IRA, period. You don't have to go through the back door. But when you do convert it to a Roth IRA, you will owe ordinary income taxes on it. So the question becomes, you're 66 years old right now. You don't have debt. You have long-term care insurance. I'm looking at a few of the things that you have in here, right? And you're more concerned about your kids and making sure that your kids don't have to pay taxes on this when you die and blah, 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 blah. I'm more concerned about you, girlfriend, because I'm looking at the amount of money that you have here. And even though it's a nice amount and you own your home outright, Things happen as we get older. And what set off the alarm is that you would have to take money out of your IRA to pay the taxes on the conversion. So that means you're converting more than you would want to simply so that you have tax money to pay, which means you don't have enough money outside of this to pay taxes. So no, I think this is a horrible idea and I don't think you should do it on any level at this point in time. There you go, Beth. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad I selected this because I thought, all right, people re really need to understand a lot about these um, retirement accounts. Yeah, they do. But, you know, Beth's going to need to start using that money possibly later on. If she really didn't need any of it and she had extra money and she put away $10,000 and converted that every year and she had the money to pay taxes on it because she's in a low-income tax bracket, okay, what concerned me, so if I read this wrong, Beth, you take it from there, right? But is that 
If you didn't have the money to pay the taxes on it, you can't afford to convert it. Just that simple. All right. You know what? It's my time. It's KT's quizzy time. I have made this so easy for you. Oh my goodness. And everybody else. And actually, I gave a hint in one of the earlier questions I answered as to what the correct answer is for this quizzy. Is it a yes or no answer? Yes, it's All yes right. or no. All right. All right. All right this me. is from Kimberly. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. It's KT and your quizzy time. Does the 30-day wash rule apply to IRAs and Roth IRA transactions? If you don't wash something in 30 days, you're in trouble. <laughs> Remember you didn't wash your jeans when don't you had the radio tell them show? That story. Oh, that was so funny. Okay. So <laughs> what is the question again? Does the 30-day wash rule, which means if you buy something and you sell it at a loss so that you can take it off your taxes, mm -hmm. you cannot buy it back again for at least 30 days. You can't even buy something similar to it. That's true. So so does the 30-day wash rule apply to IRA, Roth IRA transactions? Yes. Without a shadow of a doubt. Yes. You're positive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You just said I can't. This has to do with the stocks. KT. Inside of my investment. I uh, IRA wait, wait, wait. and a Roth. You do not pay taxes on it when you buy or sell it. So if they sold it within their Roth or their traditional IRA, there would be no tax loss whatsoever. Because when you buy okay, something so you within... Okay, so you can't buy or sell it outside of your that tradition. wasn't the question. All right, but you that got was this the, one wrong. That Just was admit the early, you got this I wrong. I got it wrong, but what I got right was what you said earlier in the podcast. But if you had listened right? earlier, if you go back and listen to what I said earlier, I said that the 30-day wash rule only applies to investments outside of an IRA. <laughs> you don't wash something for 30 days, you're in trouble anyway. <laughs> <laughs> People aren't going to think that's funny. All right. I didn't listen carefully enough, but I did listen in it in the beginning. I thought we did quite well today. All right. right? When are we going to announce the winners? I Soon. think in about a month. Right. They in just about have, a few weeks. A few weeks. We'll see. So they just have to check everything's legitimate. Everything is whatever. I can't wait right? to find out who won. I'm so excited. So, it's well, a lot of money. Well, seven of you have won. Yeah, seven, seven winners. have won. Seven so lucky winners. winners. So I love that. However, remember, you can always be a winner in your own way by simply opening up an account and Alliant Credit Union by going to myalliant.com and you can still take advantage of the Ultimate Opportunity Savings Account where if you put $100 a month in for 12 consecutive months, you get $100 at the end of those 12 months. Guess what? That's a 16.7% return on your money. Guaranteed to you if you just follow the rules. I would take advantage of that. All right, until Sunday, I have a little bit different of a Susie school for you. Um, so tune in because I think you're going to find it interesting because I do. Kitty's wondering. <laughs> what is it? I am not telling well, give you. Give us a little hint. It's, give us a little teaser, something. It's somebody wrote in an email. Somebody wrote in another email. 
and I'm going to answer and teach the first person who wrote in an email as to why her husband is so seriously wrong by demonstrating what happened with the second email. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Real life scenarios Ooh. and um, something you really all need to listen to. Okay, that and will intrigues from it. me now. I want to be part of it. All right, everybody. Until Sunday, we want you to remain safe, strong, and, and secure. All right. See you then. We love you. Bye-bye. We can't Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman is acting as a certified financial planner, advisor, a certified financial analyst, an economist, CPA, accountant, or lawyer. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman make any recommendations as to any specific securities or investments. All content contained in this podcast is for informational and general purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and financial advisors regarding your particular situation. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman accepts any responsibility for any losses which may arise from accessing or reliance on information in this podcast. And to the fullest extent permitted by law, we exclude all liability for loss, damages, direct or indirect, arising from the use of this information. The must-have documents discussed in this podcast are legal documents created by a lawyer and distributed by Hay House.